0: So I'm glad that you guys are here today. I also wanted to say a special thank you. I know a lot of you we're, we're past our giving time, but I want to say a special thank you to those of you who give and support our church. Um, thank you so much. It really supports the ministries that we do here and makes a lot happen, and uh, it enables us to do so much more here and around the world. So thank you. If you aren't a recurring giving you, giver, you can always go online, stablechurch.com, under the give tab, that up. Um, we'd appreciate that. But today we are jumping into a new series, a new series called. Un- Dignified, undignified, because we are going to look at someone who's an awesome guy, pretty incredible in history that we can look at to learn how to worship. I really think he's the guy who shows us the best in the Bible, how we can worship. So we're going to look at his life and what he did. And his name was David. Well, good. So we're going to look at David and we're going to learn how to worship like a king. You like that? We're going to worship like a king. So I want you to turn to the person next to you and say, worship like a king. So in this series, we're going to talk about what worship is, what it means, because it's more than just what we sing, although when we sing on Sunday mornings, that's a good part of worship, maybe some of your favorite part of what worship is, but worship is so much more than that, and we're going to learn from David's life lessons and also from some of the things he wrote, because he wrote a whole bunch of songs, and they're in this book called Psalms, which means songs. Uh, Yeah, that's what it means. It means songs, and David wrote it. It was basically like the hymnal for God's people. Did any of you guys grow up with a hymnal? You had your book with all your seven, eight hundred songs that were selected. Basically, David wrote almost half of the psalms that we have in our Bible. He wrote half of these songs. He's a prolific songwriter, like Bob Dylan before he ever was around, right? He wrote a ton of songs. So we're going to look at some of his psalms in this series. We're also going to look at some things, some stories from his life to learn that. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and jump to 2 Samuel chapter 6. We're going to be there today. You can follow along on your smartphone. We'll have some of the, the main verses up here as well. As we look at Second Samuel 6. And today we're going to see David completely humiliated. Who in here likes to be humiliated? Who who likes to be embarrassed? No, no one? Only by God. Only by God. Okay. Nobody likes to be embarrassed, right? Nobody likes to be humiliated. It's not fun. And I had one of those experiences this week. One of those embarrassing experiences. So... Um, uh, earlier in the week, uh, Melissa and I had talked about, "Hey, I'm going to try to get off work early one of these days, and we're going to go to the pool. We're going to go to the pool together." And it was Wednesday, and Sawyer Trap and Grant Ryder. Uh, Sawyer's our new student ministry director. Grant Ryder's going to be our community director. They both came on, so that was their first day, and I was kind of going over the ropes with them. I was the big man on campus, right, teaching them how, how, how to, you know, be a part of our church. Some of the things we were talking about, I felt kind of big. Things were going well. So those guys left, and I was texting my wife. I was texting Melissa, and. It, you know, I, I sent some emojis. Because that's what you do, right? you weren't those emojis. don't no one. But, but I said, hey, we're going swimming. So I sent a mermaid, of course. And then a merman. And then a fish with a question mark. Because that's what everybody knows what means. Let's go swimming, right? And I just got a bunch of question marks back. I said, oh, she must not know what I'm talking about. So I sent a bunch of more emojis. A bunch of like people swimming in the water. and And then I realized... I wasn't texting Melissa. I was texting Sawyer. (laughs) Thankfully, Sawyer was a good sport, and he hasn't even brought it up at all since then. Thank you. But I was pretty embarrassed. I was humiliated, right? It was a pretty small thing, but I felt so stupid. Have you been there? Done something really embarrassing, humiliating. Yeah. So that's where I was. Um, On wednesday and you know most of us don't like that experience and most of the time It's not very good at all because we really care We want people to like us and think we're (laughs) more respectable than we actually are. We want people to think we're cool We want to be dignified But sometimes it's important and it's good for us to be humiliated It's good for us to maybe even be a little embarrassed And undignified To be humble. So that's what we're going to learn today from David, so we're gonna pick up this story. This is right after David really became king So I'm gonna jump back a little bit next week We're gonna see one of the early stories in his life, but we're jumping into the story where now he is king So if you know anything about David is that he was the youngest the eighth son of a guy named Jesse He was just a little shepherd boy and God decided he would be the king of Israel He was the second king because the first king was named Saul and Saul Actually was rejected by God because he would not obey God God had chosen Saul and told Saul exactly what to do and then Saul didn't do it And in fact when God confronted him through the prophet Samuel Saul was like well, you know, could you still like pretend that I'm okay with you Samuel and walk down with me? So I look good in front of everybody else and God rejected Saul and then chose this little boy David who's probably a young teenager, maybe not even a teenager to be the king But he didn't become king that day, did he? No, in fact, it took years. David went into the service of Saul that we'll see next week, and he played music. He was a very good musician. He could play a face-melting solo on the harp. He was good. We're going to see that next week. He was talented. He wrote all these songs. Everybody loved him. And then he became a warrior as just a little shepherd boy. He took a sling, right, and killed this guy named... Goliath, you remember that story, he kills the giant, becomes famous, and then he goes out and leads the army into battles and into wars, and he wins every battle he's in. People write songs about him because he's so amazing, these ballads. Everybody loves him, but now Saul gets mad. Saul's the king, and he tries to kill David, and David runs away, and he tries, Saul tries to kill him again, and finally David flees for his life. He's on the lamb for years after that. He's already been waiting for years to become king, and now he's running for his life for years, away from his family, away from his home. And he's there, and Saul still tries to track him down and kill him. And twice David has this opportunity to kill Saul. He snuck up on him and ambushed him, but he doesn't kill him because Saul is the king. And David keeps waiting years, decades probably. And then finally Saul dies at the very end of the book of 1 Samuel. And then David's king, right? Kind of. See, the southern tribes liked David and they anointed him king. But the rest of the tribes, the ten other tribes, said, no, no, no. We still want Saul's son to be king. We want a dynasty. So then the nation was divided. Civil war ensued. And for a period of five more years, David was kind of king, but not really. So he keeps waiting and waiting. And it's hard to know the times because we're not always told how many years it was. But I estimate somewhere between 20 and 25 years after David was told he would be king to when he actually then became king. And that's where we pick up the story. David finally has become king over all the twelve tribes. The the whole land is united. But then there were still some enemies of God's people living within the land, running some cities and and owning them. So David went through and took out all of the enemies and conquered all of the promised land for the first time ever. In fact, he conquered this one city and he decided that would be his capital. He called it the city of David. We know it as Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And David's excited. Finally, he's the king. Finally, he controls the promised land. He has achieved the height of the success that he's supposed to do. Everybody's excited, right? Because now the king is there. So David decides to throw a parade. That's what you do. That's what you do when you are the conquering king, when you're victorious. You've won the battle. uh, You've just won the Super Bowl, right? You go have your parade. 600,000 Denverites show up, right? Isn't that what happened a few years ago? So that's where we pick up this story. And David is throwing this parade and he decides, okay, we're going to send this parade and we're going to go into my city, the city of David, and we're going to show off how great everything is. And he says, on top of this, I need to go get the Ark of the Covenant so that God is with me because I am the king. I got to bring the Ark to my city, my capital. And David goes to pick up this Ark and it says that he had 30,000 soldiers. That's pretty impressive. 30,000, that's enough to defeat any ancient people at the time, right? This is an entire uh, battalion upon battalion, his best soldiers, and they are now war-hardened after years of civil war, years of winning battles. These guys are the best troops. They are marching in step. They look good. Their weapons are there. They know how to look good in front of everybody. And 30,000 soldiers are there. And then he says, okay, how are we going to transport the ark? We need to build a brand new, beautiful cart. I just imagine this is like a float, you know, for his parade, he wants it to look really good and put the ark there. So he says, oh, I got God with me. I am King David, I'm the conquering king I'm at the height of my power. And so they go and they bring this and he says, no, we need some music. So he gets the marching band. Really, that's what it is. These, these people, they're playing cymbals, it says, and timbrels, all sorts of instruments. We don't even have anymore. They got horns. They got Everything, the best band, the best music that he could find, right? And this marching man's going, they're celebrating, and everybody's excited because this is David's parade. He's won. But then something happens. As they're going to Jerusalem, one of the oxen on the cart pulling the Ark of the Covenant, the oxen stumbles. And as the oxen stumbles, one of the men who's there with the cart Reaches out to grab the ark of the covenant, just stabilize it. Do you know what happens? He dies. What? He touches the ark of the covenant and he dies. You guys know about the ark of the covenant, right? You've seen Raiders: of The Lost Ark. It melts your face, right? Completely off. You remember that movie? Steven Spielberg made it look really crazy, right? Because the Ark of the Covenant was this box, but it wasn't just any box. This was a beautiful box. It was four feet by two and a half feet by two and a half feet tall. And it was inlaid covered by gold. And inside it were some of the most important mementos from Israelite history when God had moved. But to make it even more special, they on top had built with the, the, the most beautiful craftsmen in, in the day that they took it and they put, put these cherubim on top. Cherubim are angels and they made these two angels with their wings outstretched as if to form a throne And you know who was seated on that throne? No one Nothing This is unheard of in the ancient world, but they did that because what is the second commandment in the ten commandments? You shall make no graven image You can't make any image to represent god because god is not a thing. He's not a person. He's not an animal You can't make anything to represent him. So here's this just empty space this throne And God chose for a period of time in human history to reside with his people as if he were there on the throne. He was with his people. That's where he resided for a time. It's interesting, right? He didn't melt people's faces, but still was a pretty incredible, powerful, important box that they're bringing. And now, as Uzzah, this man's name, reaches out and touches the ark, he is dead. Struck dead. On the spot. Now, some of us are like, what? That doesn't make any sense. Why would God kill that man for just touching the box and trying to stabilize it? Why would God do that? But that's the wrong question to ask. The real question we should be asking is, why didn't God strike all of them dead? Seriously. Because it seems great to have these, this huge army, 30,000 war uh, hardened soldiers that are looking great. It seems great to have this marching band and this brand new float to carry the ark. But it goes against God's written law. You see, God had given specific instructions. His law through Moses to his people, specifically about the ark. He's saying, if I'm going to reside among you and and be there in my presence among you, you have to do exactly as I say. And instead of 30,000 soldiers, what there should have been were the Levites and the priests. People from the tribe of Levi, they were the people who could actually work with the Ark. And only the priests could touch it for a short time while it was in the tabernacle. And then they actually handed it off to these people called the Kohathites. A specific family, a clan, and they were the only ones who could carry the Ark. You didn't put the Ark on a cart. specific rules. They had to take these long wooden poles and put them in the rings on either side of the Ark. And then these Kohathites were supposed to carry them on their shoulders. But that's not what David was doing, was it? So we should be saying, well, why didn't God strike all of them dead? All of them deserved to die because they were treating God with disrespect. He said, this is what you should do and nothing else. No one can even touch the ark when it's moving. You can only touch those poles and only these people. And yet David and his army and all this procession, this parade broke God's law. When we comprehend and read this story, some of you maybe for the first time are hearing this, we think, what the heck? How could God do that? And that's probably how David felt. In fact, that's where we're going to pick up our story in verse 9. Verse 9 says, David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was afraid. It even says in verse 8 that he was angry wouldn't you be angry, too? Do you know why he was angry? Because God reigned on his parade. This was his parade. He was the conquering king. Sure, he wanted God there. Yeah, he wanted to show off. But, but this was his day. He was going to come into his city and show off that he had won the war and he was the king of all. And now God had killed this man right in the middle of it. Way to kill a mood. Literally. You can just feel why he'd be angry. And we think the same way too. Why would God do that? Why would he strike someone down? But here's the thing we don't understand. And probably David didn't at that point. That God is powerful. God is holy. God is righteous. In him there is no wrong. No sin. And anyone who goes before him with sin or does what is wrong will be killed. The word that's used in this passage and throughout the Old Testament is glory for God. Do you know what that word is in Hebrew? It's a Hebrew word, kavod. Do you know what it means? Weight. Heaviness. It's something that weighs a lot. It's heavy. And that's the presence of God. It, you can't see him. It's like, where is he? He's not sitting on the throne, but his glory is there and it's powerful. It's weighty. He's holy. He's like the sun. If you get too close, you're going to be burned up because he is all powerful, all righteous, and you better not go near him if you are sinning or doing what he says not to do. He will destroy you. And if you're thinking, well, Matt, that's like the God of wrath of the Old Testament. We don't, I don't like that God. I like the the God of love in the New Testament. But here's the thing. It's the same God. It's the same God from Old to New Testament. In fact, there's a story very similar to this in the book of Acts in the New Testament. There's these two people, a couple, Ananias and and Sapphira. And they were going to give some money from some land that they sold. But they lied to God. They lied to the church and said, here's all of the money that we made, all our proceeds. But they actually kept some for themselves. They lied to God and lied to everyone else. And do you know what happened to both of them? Struck dead. New Testament. (laughs) But that's the God of love. But here's the thing. It's the same God, and it's the same God that is all-powerful, the God that created the universe, the God of all glory, the God of all weight and heaviness. He is power. He is holy. He is righteous. That's why we should say, why doesn't he strike all of us dead? So David cancels the parade. No more celebration today. And he leaves the Ark of the Covenant with a man named Obed-Edom. You don't have to remember that. No pop quiz. But he leaves it with Obed-Edom, a Gittite, it says in the passage. And, and David leaves the ark there with this man for three months. Do you know what happened in those three months? It says that the man's household was blessed. Now, we're not given details about it, but later in the book of Chronicles, it tells us that he had many sons, and his sons had many sons. He had this huge, enormous household, and in that day and age, it was very important to have a lot of kids, especially sons, because who was going to run your farm and your business? You needed many sons to work. And it was a blessing. It was considered blessed to have lots of sons. It was considered blessing. And probably he was prospering. His animals probably were having lots of kids. His livestock is multiplying. He's probably getting rich. Everything good is happening to him. It just says blessed. It's this term that refers to everything. And he was so blessed that it was the gossip everywhere and it even got back to David. If gossip is that important that even the king hears about it, he must have been really blessed. Things were good for Obed-Edom and his household. Life was very good. And I think David realizes something during this three months, especially when he hears this news. I think he realizes something really important. And that's why he goes to pick up the ark again. Because here's the thing. Yes, God is the God of all glory, all heaviness, all power. We should be afraid of him and tremble before him. But that same God is the God of love and goodness. C.S. Lewis wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. Some of you have read the books or seen the movies. And in the first of the books he wrote, uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's this section. And, and C.S. Lewis, in this entire um, the Chronicles, there's seven books. He represents God. He represents Jesus by a figure Aslan, who is a, a lion, a lion to represent God. And these children in the story are trying to figure out what's up with this lion, what's going on. And they talk to, of course, the Talking Beaver. You guys all remember the Talking Beaver. Mr. and Mrs. Beaver are there, and these boys, these kids, are asking, Well, well what about Aslan? Is he safe? And Mrs. Beaver says, Safe? <laughs> who said anything about safe? He isn't safe but he's good. And that's our God. He isn't safe. He's all glory, all righteousness, all holiness. He's heavy. But he's also a God of blessing and goodness and love. He cares about people. So David goes to pick up this ark. And this time he does it right. This time he does it right. So we're going to pick up this passage again. Verse 13, it says, when those who were carrying the ark, there's no cart, is there? There's no float. This is what God's people were commanded to do. And we're told in the book of Chronicles that it was the Kohathites. The right family was holding the ark and they were carrying it on the poles. Those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps. He sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Some scholars tell us that this may have happened every six steps. We're not sure. But either way, David realized, okay, they can take a few steps, but they are not holy. They have been unrighteous. They have sinned and they need a sacrifice to atone for what they have done. So they slaughter these animals and the blood that is shed covers over their sins. And He does it right, just as God had told them to. They carry the ark this way. And then it goes on in verse 14, wearing a linen ephod. We'll get back to that. David was dancing before the Lord with all his might while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. First thing I want you to notice is this linen ephod. You guys all have one of those at home, right? No? <laughs> we're like, what? What is that thing? A linen ephod was probably some sort of garment, a cloak, or, you know, and it probably hung from the shoulders and maybe went down to the waist. We're not too sure what it looked like. But the ephod was something that was worn by priests. But it doesn't say in ephod, it says a linen ephod. And this is important because the high priests wore a very fancy, specific, special ephod. It was beautiful. It was made of blue and scarlet um, yarn. And it had gemstones, 12, one for each of the tribes of Israel on it. And it probably had golden tassels, maybe golden bells along the bottom of it. It was beautiful, a work of art. And that's what the high priest wore. But David wore a linen ephod. And linen ephod, that phrase is only used one other time. When Samuel was a young boy in training to become a priest, it says he wore a linen ephod. So what I think we can gather from this is that he was wearing not the garments of a king, Not even the garments of a high priest, but of a lowly apprentice priest. was an assistant in training, a teenage boy would wear those clothes. But that's what David was wearing. Did anybody wake up really early or stay up really late and watch the royal wedding a few months back? Anybody in here? There's a few hands. You guys can admit it. You can be embarrassed today. Admit it. But what does everybody talk about with the royal wedding? Fashion. What was everybody? What were they wearing, right? Or who were they wearing? They walk down the red carpet. It's all about, you know, you've got to have the right cut. For the women, it's the gowns, beautiful. Okay, what, which designer picked that out? Which designer made that? And with the men, it has to be perfectly tailored suits, right? They have to look really good, especially the royalty. They have to look great. Kings always look good. But what is David? He's wearing what a common teenage priest is wearing. He's just blending in with all the rest of the priests. And that's probably who we brought in the book of Chronicles. We're told that. There was priests that were involved in this. David got the right people, not his 30,000 soldiers. They may have been there, we're not told. But there were priests. And David was blending in with the rest of the crowd in that parade. And it says that he's dancing before the Lord with all his might. He's dancing. You ever seen a parade? What do royalty usually do? They're in the convertible. And they're doing one of these. They look good, right? They have the perfect way that they're supposed to wave. They look regal. They're, they're great. In this day, maybe he'd be riding a white stallion and he has his sword at his side. He's the conquering hero and, and he has his special bodyguard around him to keep him safe. But what is David doing? He's dancing right in the midst of everybody else, just blending in. Just one of the people. And it says in this passage that they were singing all of Israel with shouts and sound of trumpets. In Chronicles, we're told that David selected people. He didn't pick his marching band this time. It says that he selected worship leaders. This is probably the first time ever that worship leaders had been installed and David chose them. He picked people from the tribe of Levi so they were the right people. He made sure that they were both spiritually mature and that they were also very good musicians. He picked the best of the best and they were the worship leaders now leading in worship. This wasn't David's parade anymore, was it? And it says that they go into the city now. It says they go into the city and in verse 16, we read, As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. Because she sees, she's the daughter of the last king, and now she sees this new king dancing, leaping about, wearing a linen ephod. That's not what kings do. It's disgusting. It's demeaning to your position, she would think. How can you do this? You know, she introduces the daughter of Saul, but do you know who Michal was? Anybody? She was David's wife. Interesting. Doesn't call her the wife of David. Calls her the daughter of Saul because she was not like her husband. She was acting like her father who had been rejected by God. And she is so angry. How could my husband be so foolish and look like that? How could he demean his position? He needs to be regal. He needs to have his sword at his side, leading his troops. But he's not. He's dancing with the rest of them, leaping in the air. What a goofball. Come on. This isn't kingly. This isn't regal. And then David does this big worship service and he blesses all the people, he prays for them and it says that he even hands out bread, special raisin bread. I mean, this is good stuff back in the day. He gives it to every single man and woman who is there. He's just blessing them all, giving them, and he prays for them before they go. And then it says in verse 20, When David returned home, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. She's disgusted because the entire city now has seen David. It wasn't just the soldiers, it wasn't just the priests, but as they came into the city, everyone who was left behind the nursing mothers, the servants, the slave girls, the people that couldn't go out to the parade they see David dancing just like everybody else. Celebrating and worshiping God like a vulgar fellow. That phrase was probably very derogatory. You see it other places in the Bible, and it's not good when someone's called that. Don't you love this little marital spat? We get to She's just so angry, despises him. This is what David says back. David said to McCall, It was before the Lord who chose me. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by the eyes of these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. You know what David realized right in that moment? Or maybe in the moment when obed edom was getting blessed. You know what he realized? He realized it wasn't about him. He realized that, yeah, he was the king, but he was only the king because he had been chosen by God. You know what's really interesting about Obed-Edom is that he was a Gittite, meaning he was from the city of Gath, meaning he was from the Philistine territory. He probably wasn't part of the people of God. And yet God, when God's presence was there in the Ark of the Covenant at this man's house for three months, blessed him. He chose to bless someone. That's what God does. Even David realized it's not about me. It's not because I chose God. It's not because I am the conquering hero and I have all these things. I have these great laurels and everything I have accomplished. No, no, no. It's because God chose me that I am blessed. How could I not then humble myself, even be humiliated in my eyes? Because it's not about me, he realized. It's about God. Here's the thing that I want you to realize today. If you want to worship like a king, you've also got to realize that it's not your parade. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry to break the news to you. It's not. I don't care how accomplished you are. If everyone in your field looks up to you and thinks you're great and that you've done great things, you have all these degrees and accomplishments. I don't care in your school if you're the, the big man on campus. I don't care if everybody thinks you're great. It's not your parade. God is the one who has blessed you with everything that you have. He created you. He called you. It's his parade. It was his parade the whole time. But David had to realize it. David had to realize it. A while back, um, once I I spoke with this man, and he had um, done something wrong, and in order to make things right, he was going to have to do something that was going to be really embarrassing, humiliating for him. And I was talking to him and counseling him, and I said, well, you know, as Christians, as a believer, he was a believer, I said, we are called to be humble. We have to do that, even when it's hard. And he told me, well, you know, I believe in humility in principle. And then he was unwilling to do what he had to do, and it ended up costing him a lot. That's the thing. Humility sounds great, doesn't it? We love humble leaders. We want humble leaders. We want them to to be like that. We want them to be like David. We want to be like that, but it's so hard when it actually comes down to, are we going to do it? When the rubber meets the road in our life, will we really humble ourselves, even be embarrassed or humiliated in the eyes of others or in our own eyes to make God's name great and not ours? But it's not our parade. So I hope we do. You know, this applies to all of our life. This applies to all of our life. And we're going to talk in a little bit just about singing and worship, what we do on Sunday mornings. But worship is so much more than that. In Romans Romans 12.1, we're told, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Our bodies, our lives, everything we are is supposed to worship God and give honor and glory to him and not to us. And in every action that we take, in every relationship we have, all our, even our attitude that we have, we can choose. Am I going to glorify God or am I going to glorify myself? Is it going to be my parade or his parade? Maybe you've heard the phrase audience of one. Who are you looking to please? Do you want to be held in high esteem by others or by God? Harold Best, in his book on worship called Unceasing Worship, he says, Worship is the continuous outpouring of all that I am, all that I do, and all that I can ever become in light of a chosen or choosing God. He called his book Unceasing Worship because every single one of us, Christian or not, no matter what your religion or non-religion, we're all worshiping something. Unceasing worship. And that's why he says a chosen or choosing God. We can choose to worship things or stuff, or ourselves, that's our most common form of worship, isn't it? We like to elevate ourselves, make ourselves look good. Or we can have the God that chooses us and loves us and is good to us and blesses us and saves us if we believe in Jesus Christ. We're all worshiping something with all that we do. So who's prayed? What are you throwing? I want you to think about it in your life. This is... This so many different realms of our lives, but, but say you're thinking about a romantic relationship. You can choose in that romantic relationship to do it the way that God has set up, to honor Him with all that you do, and, and you know what? It's probably going to make people make fun of you. They're going to think, you're ridiculous. Why, why are you living that way? Why are you doing that? Come on. But you've got to decide, do, do I care about what they think or what God thinks? Or, or maybe you're a student, and you're walking around the hall of your school, you're just getting back in a week or two, If you let people know that you're a believer, if you tell them you're coming to to turbulence on Wednesday night, I remember getting made fun of for telling people I went to Sunday school. You're going to get mocked. You're going to get made fun of. People are going to think you're foolish. But you've got to decide. Whose parade is it? Mine or theirs? Or God's? In all the avenues of your life, as you go back to work, tomorrow, or some of you this afternoon, as you're going, will you do as Colossians 3.23 all things for the glory of God? Working with all your might as for the Lord and not for men? Because you can do everything you do, all your work for the glory of God, if you work for Him and not for yourself. We have to make this decision every day, who will I worship? Will I glorify myself or glorify God? Who is my audience? Whose parade is it? So I want you guys to think about that. Whose parade is it? Whose parade? And, and if you're thinking, well, Matt, it, it seems kind of like dumb, then I won't get, you know, the, the parade for myself. <laughs> I won't get the honors. I won't get the laurels. People might not like me. They might think I'm foolish if I'm giving glory to God all the time. I might not advance in my career. But here's the thing, what Jesus said in Matthew 23:12. He said, For those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. That's the promise Jesus gives. And here's the coolest thing. We don't need an Ark of the Covenant anymore. Did you know that? We don't need to go send Indiana Jones to go find that box, bring it back, and hopefully we don't get our faces melted. We don't need that. We don't need an archaeologist to find it. In fact, in Jeremiah 3.16, there was this prophecy from God. It said, In those days, declares the Lord, people will no longer say the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. It will never enter their minds or be remembered. It will not be missed, nor will another one be made. Do you know why? Because God chose to come down in a different form. Not to sit on a box, but to come and be a human. Jesus. And that human was the greatest servant of all. He loved us, he served us, he washed his disciples' disgusting, dirty feet. And then it humbled himself and became a servant even to death, even death on a cross, it says in Philippians 2, because the death on a cross was the most humiliating way anyone could die in the ancient world. And that's the way that Jesus went, to serve us. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus died on the cross to serve us the ultimate humiliation. But he did it so that if we believe in him, we might be lifted up. We might be exalted at the end. It's his parade. And if we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we've got to make him Lord. And we've got to make it not our parade, but his. It's not your parade. So as I have the band come up right now, what we're going to do in this series, if if you notice, we had just a couple songs at the beginning. We're going to, we usually do like four or five songs at the beginning and one or two at the end. We're flipping that for this entire series. We're flipping that because I want you guys to practice and put into practice the things we're learning about worship. Because yes, we worship with our whole lives, everything we are, all that we do every day. But we also worship here on Sunday mornings through song. David was great at writing songs. We're going to learn from him how to do that. And um, part of that, is, is putting this into practice. So I want to challenge you guys today. I want to challenge you guys today to really worship. And, and you might be a little humiliated as you do it. Okay? I want you to get, feel a little undignified. I'm really going to stretch you a little bit this morning. I'm really going to stretch you. Um, there's a verse. Um, yeah, there it is. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us approach the throne of grace with boldness. So that way we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need We don't have to be afraid to come to God because Jesus Christ was the final sacrifice He was the final one killed So that we don't have to be We can approach that God of heaviness, of glory, of holiness With boldness And we can be undignified like David Because you know, David didn't even know Jesus I mean, he was just kind of looking forward knowing that a Messiah would come eventually But we actually do know Jesus so if David was willing to be undignified and humiliated in his, in his eyes and the eyes of even his wife, how could we not do the same? Because we do know our Savior. So I'm going to challenge you guys to worship like you actually believe it. Okay. And this does mean physical response. Some of you may be dancing, like David. Some of you may not. But here's the thing. All of us respond some way. And if you're like, Matt, I'm just not a responsive person. I'm not really emotional. I don't really do that would I believe that if I saw you at a football game? And the Broncos just scored. Would you raise your hand in the air and cheer? Would you pump your fist because you had victory? If not, that's okay. But then you're saying, well, Matt, I don't really sing. I don't really get into music. What if I saw you at your favorite concert? And they were playing your favorite song. And you're like, oh my gosh, would you take out your phone, live stream yourself, tears coming down your face, you're screaming the words out. So I wouldn't want you to say that. Some of you are not responsive people, you're not I'm real emotional, that's fine. But if you are in those other realms, you should be at least the same when you're worshiping God. So I'm going to challenge you, I'm going to stretch you a little bit this morning as we worship the God of the universe. You guys in? Let's pray. Lord God, it's not our parade. You created us. You called us. You breathed life into us. You blessed us with all the riches, all the blessings, the heavenly blessings that we have through Jesus Christ, who died like Uzzah, even though he did not deserve it in our place. Who among us can stand? How can the ark of the Lord come to us, as David said? It can't. We are sinful. We are unrighteous, but we come to you boldly through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's not our parade, Lord. It's yours. And we want to bring glory to your name and worship you because you are the God of the universe, the God of all creation.